Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, brought to you by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. As always, happy to be with you, Kevin. It's great to be here. We're going to be in New Orleans this week, aren't we, David? We are. I'm looking forward to that, always. Yeah, you can't beat New Orleans. More good football players per capita than any other state in the country. More good food per capita uh, yeah. than any other place in the country. I'm more uh, the, the food coma, which will overtake me, I would say, <laughs> when I'm staying over Friday evening will probably be pretty extensive. Yeah, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to blame uh, New Orleans cooking for this, but you know, I had my first heart attack after a trip to New Orleans. After I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah it's just kind of. Uh, I think I, I loaded up a little too much. On this but you stuff. still look forward to getting back the next trip there too. Absolutely. Are you kidding? <laughs> What's life if you can't eat good food? If I'm if I'm going to die, that's okay. As long as I ate a good meal before I went, that's all that matters. And also joining us, speaking of eating a good meal, uh, Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. How are you? I'm great. It's all great to be here. Great, 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 great. <laughs> Evan is clearly miffed. miffed. I've been here for 30 minutes. Oh, now, Evan's oh. mad because I've had a lot of technical difficulties here today, and so he's blaming that on me, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry that... My uh, laptop doesn't uh, cooperate well, but anyway. You should not use it for plowing your kraut, your crops. My kraut? Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Nice job. Or grout. Or whatever. Whatever he's got in mind. All right. Let's talk about plowing this cowboy. Your, plowing your crops. Your farm. Yeah, th- okay. Thank you very much, Evan. <laughs> now, now just be quiet. Uh, so, so David, uh, we got the, the Cowboys playing the Saints this week without their head coach, uh, who I, I assume will just what be back in the old abode or he'll be at, at uh, the star. Or where will he be? He will be in his uh, hotel room. Uh, ironically, he checked out uh, after the Thanksgiving Day game. He moved into a hotel room on uh, the hotel adjacent to the facility because since there was uh, – there was clearly the virus was going around the coaching staff. He didn't want to put his family in danger uh, or he wanted to minimize the risk to them. So he went ahead and moved in to the hotel uh, the Friday after, and uh, it did not save him or two of his family members who have since come down with it. So yeah, he will be watching the game uh, from his hotel room. I, I had not heard that Mike McCarthy's two family members had also come down with it. I, I hate yeah. to hear that. That's a, that's terrible. Uh, we, we certainly wish him all the best and, and that they get over this, that whatever protocol they're using out there, it doesn't seem to be working very well, David. Well, you know, he also spoke to him again today and he was, we asked specifically, had you had your booster yet? And he was scheduled to get his booster this Friday. Uh, but you know, that's, that's the thing we, we do know from what, uh, they have said before, if we can take them at their word, that all of the coaching staff was vaccinated going into the season. So that means all of these coaching, uh, all the coaches who have wound up on the COVID list and it, and it's, and it's really a more expansive list than the player list are all breakthrough cases. Uh, so this just, and I think it also speaks to even, even if you do have a proper protocol in place, once you have coronavirus in a building, uh, you're going to have issues. And that's certainly taken, taken place here 
in uh, with the Cowboys. And and the other thing is too, and the, and every team deals with this. It's it's whatever community they live in, and whatever um, you know, whatever the caseload is at that time, and and whether uh, this is flaring back up again. And so you can't divorce yourself from your surroundings. Uh, it, it's not like uh, you know. Again, the NFLs never put themselves in a bubble. Um, and the, the Cowboys have certainly uh, borne the brunt of this uh, so far. Absolutely. So, uh, David, we see that Dan Quinn will be the acting head coach uh, in New Orleans. Uh, do we feel that decision? First of all, who makes that decision? Does Mike McCarthy make that decision? Does Jerry Jones? Who, who, who makes the call there? Mike does. I mean, they all talk it through as an organization, and they 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 were always leaning that way. And and I think when you look at this, I want to say it was a fairly easy decision to make because this is a team that's lost two straight and three of four, is going on the road in New Orleans. It needs to ride itself. Who on that staff, other than McCarthy, has the most experience as a head coach on an NFL sidelines? It's Dan Quinn. Who has played New Orleans? Who played New Orleans ten times when they were in the same division? Uh, Dan Quinn. So uh, he's coached games there before. I believe his overall record is four and six uh, during his time as the Falcons head coach. Uh, uh, I believe Evan can speak more to that. I don't know that all of those games uh, in New Orleans were stellar for Atlanta, but at least he knows what the environment is there. He's been through it. He has the most head coaching experience, and, and he can continue to call the defense. I mean, uh, you know, Kellen Moore will just focus on the offense as, as he normally does, and it, it'll be a little more on Quinn's plate, but he has shown he can juggle it. And and when he was the head coach in Atlanta uh, for for several seasons, he was calling the defensive plays as well. So this is not foreign territory to him. So uh, we've got the Cowboys missing their head coach. They will see the return of uh, Demarcus Lawrence, who's been out all season, uh, and also C.D. Lamb, who's been out. Uh, Terrence Steele will will be gone. Uh, But the Cowboys have the the two tackles now that were expected to be their starting tackles this season, Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins. Um, We also – who am I leaving out, David? Who else will be back for this game? Well, uh, Amari Cooper remains to be seen. Uh, the, the club is hopeful he'll be back. Um, but I'll say they've been, they've expressed optimism or hope on players returning before and it didn't happen. Uh, in fact, if you just want to go back the last two weeks, I think they actually used the word. They were optimistic that CD lamb was going to play against Las Vegas. He did not play because of the concussion the week, uh, five days before that in Kansas city, they were optimistic that Tyron Smith was going to return for that game. He did not return for that game. So, um, you know, the un- my understanding of where Amari Cooper is that he's missed the last two games because he was on the COVID list. So you've had him – he was away for the team for 10 days, so conditioning is an issue. So now you go – he did not practice yesterday, and my understanding was he was meeting with the training staff today, and he still had a cough. So it was – to be seen how much he would actually go through today. So if he does not practice today, then he only has one day of practice before the game on Thursday. And if he doesn't do much then, uh, I doubt that he'll come back on this game. But let's project out and let's say he does come back. Just based on all of that, he's not going to do his normal complement 
or, or workload from the at the wide receiver position. He's not going to be out there for 50-plus snaps. Uh, you would anticipate you would pick your spots with him and, and not try to push him coming back based on where his conditioning is not at the moment. Yeah, that'll be a loss, certainly. We saw, we saw what happened to the offense without those guys, uh, without uh, CeeDee Lamb and, and without Amari Cooper. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's a week-to-week proposition here. when someone is out. Well, you know, we, we start asking ourselves, you know, is Tyron Smith the team's most valuable player? When he was out, you know, they, they struggled uh, mightily when he was gone. Uh, and then they seemed to right the ship a little bit when Terrence Steele played better. And then when, uh, when Amari and CD were out, well, then everything, f- the bottom fell out again. I, I'm wondering how much of this um, and how much of, uh, for lack of a better term for it, Dak Prescott's slump is a product of personnel or a product of his own issues and maybe coming back from his calf strain. Well, there's no question the first game back uh, from the calf strain, uh, that Denver game, he didn't have the footwork. He wasn't able to get his feet uh, set. Uh, he He was better in that Atlanta game. Uh, but then th- these last two games have just been very quizzical in my mind. Um, he's been erratic, much more so than he usually is. I, I understand that the starting receiver's not there. Uh, but, you know, the other thing is you're not getting a consistent run game. So I, I think defenses right now aren't all that concerned about the Cowboys' run game. Uh, they're, they're clamping down on the outside receivers. And like you say, you didn't have C.D. Lamb this last game. And, you know, Dak Prescott had no rhythm whatsoever until that fourth quarter and uh, in overtime. And, and by then they were fighting back all game. You know, this is a team that has not led in the last nine quarters it has played. So when they were at their best, they get out front and then they're able to dictate tempo. Uh, they haven't been converting first downs early. They've had a lot of three and outs. Uh, it's been a very, I I believe the the phrase Mike McCarthy used the other day was herky-jerky. And and that is it, an offense that was so explosive and efficient uh, over the first, you know, seven, eight weeks of the season is anything but that right now. And here's here's what you wrestle with. And and with a franchise quarterback, especially with what Dak Prescott got paid, you want him to raise the level of performance around him, not sink to the level of how others around him are performing. And you have not seen him raise the level of the offensive performance in these last two games, and that's troubling. Yeah, it is. I don't know how much of it, you know, is just he's got himself in a little mini slump here and he's going to pull himself out of it. Uh, These are not these are not things that have been characteristic of him of the last couple of seasons, even though he only played a little while last season and there were some turnovers involved. He still looked good throwing the ball. He's he's really struggled here. I know that there were issues in Kansas City with the wind. I know that that was brought up, and uh, but you know, at, at some point you have to overcome the elements and uh, and 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 just perform. Uh, that that's part of the job. Yeah, I thought in Kansas City more than the win. I thought I thought that defense confused him. I, I thought he yeah. wasn't as decisive and clear in going through his reads on where he needed to go with the ball. Now, again, in the second half, when you lost C.D. Lamb, uh, worst-case scenario for their offense. I mean, you knew you were without Cooper going in, and then you lose C.D. Lamb on the final play of the half, and they don't score there. So now suddenly uh, you're, you're chasing them the rest of the way without your top receivers and you have to throw it. Um, you know, you can almost understand there how it unfolded. 
But uh, again, Dak Prescott was missing throws in that game he normally makes. So it's not just it was not just a lack of rhythm between him and the and the third, fourth, and fifth receivers. Uh, it just it just wasn't there. Yeah, we see now that the that Sean Payton is going to be starting uh, Taysom Hill at quarterback. Uh, and Trevor Simeon is uh, out, uh, or he's not starting. He's not out. He's just not going to play. Uh, we'll see what Taysom Hill can do. Uh, you know, he's a lot like uh, Jalen Hurts, a guy that gives you a lot on with his feet, uh, maybe not so much with his arm. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested in that. But the you know the the facts are the Saints have lost four games in a row. That uh, they are are not playing well, uh, and it's certainly time for the Cowboys to uh, you, you know, like all things considered, if, if this is a playoff team, is this the team we thought it, it was going to be? And certainly, they look like in that six game winning streak, they should just mow right over the Saints at this point. But you know, I I can I can't say that anymore. Not uh, not after we've seen them play the way they have. Well, yeah, and against a Raiders team that came into AT and T Stadium having lost three straight. At not scoring more than thirteen points in any of those three game in those three losses, and then they hang thirty six on Dallas and just completely destroy uh, the defense. And that was when their best offensive player Waller went out uh, in the first quarter with an injury, and they were still able to do that. So, yeah, but big questions. Uh, what d- defensively Dallas is going to have to respond. Uh, they've given up a lot of big plays this year. I, I don't know that the Saints are really equipped to get a lot of big plays if Alvin Kamara doesn't go uh, with Taysom Hill. I mean, Taysom Hill running is probably their best chance to get some big plays. Uh, we'll see how that unfolds. But you know, we talked about this earlier. I, I know we want to move on to some other things here, but I, I think this is interesting because we talked about after the Kansas City game about how Dallas was really going to have to wait until the Arizona game uh, to have another encounter where it would really infuse them with confidence or or some of the swagger that they had lost uh, with that Denver loss and then the way Kansas City just punched them in the mouth and they they weren't responsive. I would argue winning, even where New Orleans is right now and the way they're playing, winning in New Orleans without your head coach would probably do more to instill a little bit of swagger and saying we can write this thing uh, than it would if Mike McCarthy was there and they were fully healthy going in. So I, I think they stand to get a little bit of an emotional boost out of this game if they can win it, but that's the bottom line. They have to win the game, and from what we've seen over these last uh, three or four weeks, uh, that's not a given. You know, I'm really interested in seeing what Demarcus Lawrence will do in his return. Yeah. Certainly, he going into this season, Demarcus has been the Cowboys' best defensive player. There was never a question. And uh, now, because of the play of Randy Gregory when he was healthy, because of what Micah Parsons has done as a rookie, what uh, Trayvon Diggs has done in his second year, uh, he's got a lot of competition for being the best player. But he certainly is their best run defender. He is the guy that sets the edge. Uh, he gives you pressure, also as a defensive end. He's just an all-around player. And, and I think that that could go a long ways toward uh, setting a, a, an, uh, an example for this team as well, is what he can do and what he'll bring back. And, uh, of course, it's his first game back. Who knows how well he's going to play, how many snaps he's going to get. I don't even know if he will go through his, his normal compliment. So uh, a lot still to be uh, answered there. Yeah, he'll be – I think uh, the, the term Mike McCarthy used today was you want him to be a healthy part of the rotation as he works his way back. So I'm thinking, you know, 
15 to 21 snaps as he works his way back in. And, and that's going to grow uh, over this, this stretch. But, but getting him back, if he can stay healthy, a chance you get Randy Gregory back the week after that against Washington. If not, you should have him back the, the week after that. But you go into those final three to four games of the season with Micah Parsons, uh, Demarcus Lawrence, and Randy Gregory, then you, your defense should be in pretty good shape. Absolutely. All right, Evan, uh, a little bit of news uh, out of those uh, Rangers uh, over the weekend, uh, kind of stunning everybody uh, with the uh, signings of uh, Marcus Simeon, uh, who will apparently play second base because they also signed Corey Seager. And uh, we don't want to leave out uh, John Gray or Cole Calhoun either. Uh, is you know There had been some speculation that the Rangers would come away with two of the five shortstops. How much of a chance did you give that going in, Evan? And how much were you surprised that they were actually able to get both? I gave it less than 1% chance going in, but I think that as the offseason continued to progress, it made more and more sense for them. Um, and, uh, you know, we all took positions, Kevin, on who they should get among that group, you and Tim Callishaw and myself and Joe Hoyt. Um, and, I, you know, nobody accounted for the the double possibility. But now when I look back at it, Simeon was the perfect first choice because if you got Simeon, it gave you flexibility that if you were able to go out and get another shortstop, then Simeon could go to play second base. If you weren't able to go get another shortstop, then you had a shortstop and you could go focus on some outfielders. Um, I think that the other part of this that's significant is, look, this is not a great long-term deal for a guy who's 31. Giving him seven years is, is, is a lot. Uh, I think the market was projected to be about five years, maybe six. But the Rangers had to find somebody that they were willing to invest something of a penalty or a tax for how poorly they played the last four or five years. Uh, they did that with Semyon, and what they get with him is they get positional flexibility. They get a guy who is as respected as anybody in the game in terms of being a self-made player. Um, he is a Gold Glove caliber second baseman at this point in time, and he's finished in the top three in the MVP voting twice in the last three years. The one exception being the the COVID year when everybody was limited to sixty games and performances were more aberration than they were normal. So I think that I'm not surprised to see that they spent a lot of money. Not surprised that they landed a shortstop. I am surprised that they landed two of them. And I really am surprised that they went out and, and, and were willing to go to 10 years and the $325 million on, on Corey Seager. Uh, but what's clear now is this team is willing to invest money. They're willing to invest more money beyond where they have. And, uh, it seems like it's getting easier now that you've got one guy that actually took the money. It's getting a little bit easier to convince others to come and join them. Evan, did you get an idea? You know, it, it, when the Rangers signed uh, Alex Rodriguez, uh, the 10 years, $252 million deal, uh, which was roundly disparaged when it happened. I remember the, the reaction across baseball was people were, were throwing up left and right. This was, oh my gosh, what a horrible deal. They weren't competing with anybody. They were just competing with themselves, and they blew everybody out of the water with this. And as we've come to see, yeah, they they, they probably spent more than they needed to spend. The, the problem wasn't they spent money on A-Rod. The problem was they didn't spend money on anybody else. 
they stopped short of that. And, and John Daniels talked about that last month. And I think he was kind of trying to, to give us a clue that, yeah, that was a mistake back then. And we're not doing the same. We're not making the same mistake again. But what I want to ask you is, did you get an idea of who, who finished second in these deals? I mean, was Seager going to go back to the Dodgers if he didn't sign this deal with them? I think the point of all this, Kevin, is the, the, it doesn't matter who finished second. Um, this is the price of doing business for the Rangers right now in, in, in the place that they're at. And if they had to pay a premium for for Simeon, if they have to pay a premium for Seager, uh, that's what the Rangers have to do. They can't concern themselves with winning the market and, and, and getting too deep into negotiations. They needed to go out and procure some players at the top of the market, and, and they did that. And they were aggressive. They dictated the pace. I think this is a case, you know, this is a team that spent $561 million. They spent it on players they wanted to spend it on instead of being left with a bunch of money and having to throw it around. They got the guys they identified as their two top priorities, and now they move on to the next thing. I'm just a little stunned by the fact that the Seager seemed like such an, an obvious for the Yankees. You know, left-handed hitter. A uh, really good left-handed hitter that they really struggled in that department. That's why they added, you know, Ruggie Odor and Jody Gallo, trying to get some uh, production from the left side of the plate. Here's a guy who's a shortstop, is going to do that for you. He's a much better offensive player than either one of those guys. Uh, and you know, I know they have really one of their top prospects as a shortstop. You could have slid him over to third base after a couple of years. There were a number of things you could have done. If I'm a Yankees fan and I see the Texas Rangers walking away with Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, I'm thinking, you know, what in the, you know, how do, how do we lose to the Texas Rangers in this deal? So well, I just, that's, what I, the Yankee, that's what the Yankees said when Alex Rodriguez signed to the, signed with the Rangers in, in 2001. And, and the bottom line is the Yankees right now, they didn't want to invest $32 million in a player. They, they invested 35 in, in Garrett Cole. Uh, they, they have, they're going to have to invest a lot of money in, in Aaron Judge in the next year. Uh, they've got a bad contract on their hands in Giancarlo Stanton. And this is what this is what happens sometimes with teams. The Yankees don't want to go so far over the the, uh, the luxury threshold, the luxury tax threshold that they're they're paying penalties that make it impossible for them to go out and get players. So uh, yeah, the Yankees still want a shortstop, and they might come to the Rangers for their shortstop. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa is out there. These clubs have talked about him. Um, he certainly now doesn't have an everyday position, though he could go and play third base and, and give Josh Young legitimate competition in spring training. But the Yankees are looking for a cheaper cost of uh, a cheaper alternative at shortstop, um, and maybe one who could play the position at a little higher level than I think they believe Seager will be able to long term. And so maybe Kinderfluff is a good fit for them there. What what so what does he bring back in return though? Do you have to put a package together? I, I just don't see them getting a return for uh nothing against counter for left. I think he's a nice player, but he, he's not gonna bring a, a starter, uh a starting player, uh as I see it. Uh, no, but you, you also now you you're also giving up your second and third round draft picks to to uh to sign Seeger and to sign uh Simeon. If you can go and get the uh, equivalent from the Yankees of a second or third round pick, that might be uh, what you do. The other part of it is there are going to be some other pieces that the Rangers need, whether it's a relief arm or another catcher um, or whatnot. 
there's there's stuff that the Rangers need. And if you deal Kiner Falefa for a minor league guy, you're going to save about another $4 million that can go into other needs that this team still has to address. Primarily, they still need another outfielder, and they probably need at least one more starting pitcher. All right, one last thing here before we get on to uh, our next segment. Is Cole Calhoun going to be a starter, or is he a fourth outfielder? He's a platoon, he's, he's, he's a platoon guy at this point. He'll, I think he'll platoon with Peters in right field. Um, he, he does crush right-handed pitching. Uh, he's very, uh, he has made it clear to the Rangers. He is comfortable in that platoon position. Um, he's a good defender when he's out there. So I think the Rangers are very much interested in the possibility of, of Calhoun and Peter sharing a spot. When they acquired DJ Peters, the idea was he's done some things that have really allowed him to, to take advantage of left-handed pitching, but he never should have faced right-handed pitching. And he did that a lot in the second half because the Rangers had no other options. Now maybe they can make DJ Peters look a little bit better by keeping him out there strictly against left-handers. Very interesting. All right, let's move on now to our next segment about uh, college football. And wow, we had a an unbelievable weekend, some unbelievable moves. I have to tell you, I was shocked, shocked uh, when Lincoln Riley took the job at USC. And I think that, that most everyone else was as well. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll start this by saying that the people I had talked to a couple of years ago indicated to me that if Lincoln Riley ever leaves Oklahoma, it will be for the NFL that he's not interested in another college football job. And why would you be? I mean, Oklahoma's a, a top five, top eight football program. Storied tradition. Uh, top five, but, I would say. Yeah, probably probably top five. Uh, right up there anyway. Uh, and, of course, uh, the people in Oklahoma didn't want to hear this. After Lincoln took that job, he said he went to USC, which has an unparalleled history, as he put it. Now, Yeah, he did I, not go to a better job. He went to a better – he might have gone to a better work-life balance, but he didn't go to a better job. Oklahoma, for me, you know, Alabama, Notre Dame, and you can pick Ohio State. Oklahoma slots right there at, at three or four with Ohio State and Michigan probably at five in terms of, of the prestige of the program. But it is crazy in college football because we just talked about – We ju- I just mentioned the, LS- the uh, Notre Dame program, and Brian Kelly's leaving there to go to LSU. So I – it's all about the opportunities and, and the money right now. Well, everybody's getting a 10 year deal now. That's the new race. Uh, the, the Aggies were way ahead of the curve on that when they gave that to Jimbo Fisher. And now you see it across the board, yeah. even at UTSA gave a 10 year contract to Jeff trailer. Everybody's getting a 10 year deal. Now I will say this about the USC job. Uh, our old pal, Dave Wilson, who uh, worked at the morning news a long time ago and now works for ESPN uh, in a story he wrote for today. Uh, he's, talked about how he, in a conversation with an SEC coach, he asked him once, what is a dream job? You know, and we all think we know what dream jobs are uh, in college football. And he said, a dream job is to be at a great school in a bad conference. <laughs> and that was, or if not a bad conference, certainly a mediocre conference. So certainly what it's, what's interesting about all this is that we have to ask ourselves, and certainly Oklahoma has asked this question, by going to the SEC, did we just cost ourselves one of the best coaches we ever would have had in the history of this school? Because Lincoln Riley has now gone to the Pac-12 where if he restores USC to the place where Pete Carroll had it, uh, they're going to dominate the Pac-12, just like they dominated the Big 12. Going to the SEC, Oklahoma, I don't care if Lincoln was coaching them, I don't care who was coaching them, they were not going to dominate the SEC. 
you can make that move and, and as the Aggies did and go on and on and on about how, oh, this is the place to be and, and it's exciting and it's this and it's that. And those, those things are all true, but you sure aren't going to dominate that league. Alabama does that and that's it. Maybe Georgia. Uh, maybe someone else can step up eventually, certainly after Nick Saban's gone, maybe that happens. But th- so there is a bit, that is another big reason why he, he went out there is because I believe, because he felt like this is a place it's easy to restore this. When Bob Stoops came from Florida as a defensive coordinator and went to Oklahoma, his reasoning was, is that Oklahoma wasn't very good then. It's a lot easier to inflate and pump up a program that has been great than it is to make one that's never done anything any good. Uh, that's just a lot harder thing to, to make happen. So, And, and, like, one in, and one of Oklahoma's top recruits, isn't he a quarterback from Southern California? Five-star. He's, yeah. he's already already decommitted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I wonder why. I wonder where he'll go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question about that. No, they lost some big-time recruits uh, already, uh, just like – in another move, just like SMU's had some of its best high school uh, recruits or commitments uh, in a long time in the last oh, month or so. And those guys have all already decommitted. Rashad Samples is uh, was Sonny Dyke's uh, big recruiter. He's the one that is all behind the, the Dallas push for pushing and to uh, uh, recruit more uh, talent from Dallas. Rashad Samples was delivering on that. He was a very popular figure here. There was some rumors that Rashad might go end up on Jimbo Fisher's staff. And I, let me tell you, if he had ended up on A&M staff, then Texas would have a hard time clawing its way out of the hole that is dug for itself because he's a tremendous recruiter and, and a tremendous recruiter in Dallas. You're getting those guys to go to SMU. They're really good players. Think what you can offer if you're saying that I'm, you know, I'm at A&M and I'm offering you this same deal. So Kim- I, I – Yes, go ahead, Adam. I just wanted to ask you, I, I still have, have questions about this. I, it's always messy when coaches depart, and obviously Lincoln Riley and, and USC kept everything under wraps, and certainly Brian Kelly may have lied his way out of, out of Notre Dame and it's, it's based on some of his answers. But was the SMU mess that surrounded Sonny Dykes leaving for TCU and all the assistants leaving – and the, the, the bulk decommitment um, rush, could some of that have been avoided? Was this handled poorly? You know, here's what I say about all that stuff. When people get so upset about coaches when they leave, I don't know that you can ever handle that well. What do you say? Because obviously you're not making this commitment to a, another program. You're not going to decide in 24 hours, yeah, okay, look, I'm going to USC. Uh, yeah, they called me yesterday. Uh, let's go. You know, no one's making a decision that quickly. So obviously these are always things that have to be negotiated. I know Lincoln said he had no conversations with them until Sunday morning. Yeah. I, I, of course, I he didn't say anything about his agent in the conversation he may have had with. That's, that's exactly right. It's the agents that, that's doing all the talking. So there's always conversations and things going on. You know, now we're hearing things that Oklahoma, that, that, oh, there's, there's reports out there that Alex Grinch, uh, you know, Lincoln's defensive coordinator, they hadn't talked in weeks and that, uh, and that, you know, essentially that Lincoln pulled the plug on this thing three or four weeks ago. And that accounts for why they've struggled so much. Well, they haven't looked very good all year long. So I I don't know that I would blame all of this on, on Lincoln Riley's, uh, you know, move to USC. Uh, my, my feeling about all this is, is that if the guy's coming to your school, you couldn't care less about what happened 
there before. You would you would never complain about, oh, look at how sloppy this is, and I don't know if I like this guy. But when he's walking out the door, if he's any good, then well, then you're all. That's when you're all upset. That's when you sure. talk about betrayal and everything else. If no one was complaining when you know uh, uh, when Phil Bennett left, you know SMU, you know that that was, you know, of course he got fired. But those those are situations where this guy, look, Sonny Dykes did a really good job at SMU. Uh, he he uh, they they won at a, at a rate that they hadn't seen in almost forty years. So. Yes, the competition wasn't nearly as good as it was in the old Southwest Conference days, but still, it, they were they were a factor uh, in college football. So, I, and I don't I don't care about betrayal. I don't think that's an issue. That's part of the business. That 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 element's part of the business. I think my bigger issue is: Did SMU's administration um, make any mistakes by not limiting uh, more strictly the number of assistants he could he could take with him? Um, and did did Sonny owe more transparency to his players in the week leading up to that the, the game against Tulsa? All I know about what uh, Sonny said to his players was that, uh, hey, he, you know, what we always say is, did the guy lie? He said he wasn't, you know, it's just like when Nick Saban left Miami to go to Alabama. You know, read my lips. I'm not going to Alabama. That's a lie, you know. He, so are we, do we like it better when a guy just says, this is all going to work out? He didn't lie to his players. He said, I'm concentrating on this game here, you know? So in, in my mind, if you, if you say to your players, yeah, I'm leaving, well, then it's out and all, it's all over the place. And then it's a huge distraction. I mean, you know, when, when Bear Bryant left Texas A&M to go to Alabama, a Houston reporter uh, reported that and they lost uh, to Rice in the, in, in Bear Bryant's last game and Bear Bryant for years after that, blame this reporter for costing him a national championship at A and M. That's that's what he said. So whether that's true or not, you know, the point is, is that I don't know. I don't know what you do in these situations. I don't know if you if you just say you just if you're honest about it. If things break down, if for some whatever reason you know you, you can't make the deal with the USC, you know, or you can't make the deal with TCU, then what do you say? I've already said I was leaving, and that and now what am I supposed to do? So. It's. I think what it to me what it all is is that you have to take everything a coach says with a grain of salt. I mean, I, the coaches lie so much they don't even know when they're lying anymore. You know, they're just so used to it. Uh, it you know, and for all this talk about you know molder, I saw that quote about uh, Oklahoma. Oh yeah, he's not a molder of men. It's like, oh come on. First of all, he's a football coach. He's not. His primary job is to win football games, not to be a molder of men. That would be a nice thing. We'd like to think that was going to happen, but let's just face it. He's hired to win football games. Lincoln Riley won a lot of football games. He's still, he's not even 40 years old. Uh, He was only there at Oklahoma for five years. He left an indelible impression while he was there. They thought he was going to be their new Bud Wilkinson. They thought this guy had everything going for him and he was going to be there forever unless he left to go to the NFL, which is, as I said earlier, that was the, the only speculation. And certainly that's not out of the realm of possibility either. I mean, you know, Pete Carroll left at USD to go to Seattle. So uh, I would think, you know, probably does this for 10 or 12 years. He's 50 years old and then he becomes an NFL coach if that's what he wants to do. It does seem to me, though, I think what's interesting, not, not Lincoln, but what you saw with TCU and what you saw with LSU, you know, it's different going down in a, in a school making a move with like one game left. Now I think you're seeing institutions go, well, no, we got a jockey. We need to get ahead of this. 
So we're going we're going to fire our coach four games into the season, and we're going to be conducting our interviews because we need to jump ahead of these other schools that are going to be in the race. Right. And so we got to get so so now the line keeps moving, right? It's not just in late December, just before bowl games, where you're going, oh my gosh, what are you doing to the program? Now, and hey, you want to talk about SMU? What as soon as TCU came open, how did SMU do on the field the rest of the way? Right. Now I don't you can maybe you draw a direct correlation to that, maybe you don't, but to me that's what's interesting because now you're going to have schools go, okay, we gotta get out ahead of this. We know we know Gary Patterson or whoever's not going to be here at the end of the year. Let's fire him with five games left, and let's get our guy in place before all these other schools that are on our level are, are you know, let's get ahead. Let, let's create an unlevel playing field. Let's give us an edge. And let's let's see. And so you're that, going to have this go on longer and longer now, in my mind. Well, you probably keep moving up. I, I don't know that anyway. Some some schools have taken advantage of it pretty well. You, it worked out pretty well for USC. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it really worked out that great for uh, LSU. Uh, that they, they took forever to get uh, Brendan Kelly, uh, Brian Kelly. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm sure they could have gotten him, in, you know, uh, if they'd waited uh, and didn't fire Ed Orgeron, you know, four games into the season. Uh, but look at Texas Tech. They, they fired their coach at midseason yeah. to hire a guy they could have hired in August. You know, exactly. next August, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that he was Joey McGuire was was not a hot topic anyplace else. They were I think Texas Tech was simply trying to get ahead on recruiting. You know, they they wanted to have their coach in yep. place before the December 15th early commitment. But if you do this strategically and do it well, to me, it's just creating more issues for college football rather than just in December. Now we're going to be talking about this every year in October and November. The part for me that just leaves me with, again, not feeling completely comfortable is I know all the business of college football. I know that we're talking about big money. I know all of that. I don't care about boosters and their, their, them being betrayed. But at the end of the day, you know, there's two things that, that mamas and, and papas send their kids off to college, to colleges with. And that's one, we want you to become better at what you do and pursue your dream. And two, we'd like for the coach to to imbue you with some kind of some kind of life lesson. And I, I just feel like there's an awful lot that that seems to be lacking in that regard um, on a lot of where the job search element comes into play. Well, clearly you live in a fantasy world, Evan. So that's uh, that's the issue. But that's but we already knew that, so that's quite all right. Uh, yeah, no, no, you're right. Uh, that would be great if those kind of things would happen. They're not. And the, the more money that gets involved here, the further we're going to get away from that ideal. Yep. Let, let's just face it. These guys are getting $100 million contracts. Uh, you know, it's uh, this is just the future of college football, such as it is. So that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We appreciate everybody stopping by. Be sure to check us back next week when we'll be able to talk about what happened uh, in New Orleans and, and maybe what David and I ate while we were there. 